Analog thoughts. 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 Episode 20. Yo, this one goes out to all my haters. Everyone who said I couldn't make it to episode 5. Everyone who said I couldn't make it to episode 10. Everyone who said I couldn't make it to episode 15. Everyone who said I couldn't make it to episode 20. This one's for you. I'm just playing for real, though. I've had so much support um, about this podcast. I don't think there are any haters. (laughs) You'll notice the lack of air conditioning and AC in my home right now. I'm doing that for you. I am doing that for you. I'm sweating sweating it out for you. You may also notice um, slight sounds from my cat, Pickles. He's next to me, and he knows he knows that this is episode 20. He's here. He's meowing. He's sitting. He's purring. So I'm going to just let him do his thing. If you hear him, just recognize. So when I started this podcast, I didn't really know where it was headed. I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with education and metaphysics and spirituality. And when I started, I was taking questions from fans of my music or fans of my art. I was asking them things and um, just sort of fielding their questions. And I did that for about two or three episodes. And then it just, things sort of naturally segued into me hearing about something interesting or thinking about something interesting and fielding my own topics, creating my own list, creating my own questions. And so I've kind of been doing that for the last uh, 17, 17 episodes or so, and I hope that you've been enjoying it. I've got a lot of um, really great feedback about the podcast. Um, But if you're a listener and you want to hear me do something different or hear me talk about a specific subject, go ahead and keep that to yourself because I do what I want. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm going to be on one uh, on this episode for some reason. I'm on one. But anyway, uh, for real though, if if you'd like to hear me talk about a specific topic, reach out. Email me, Instagram, Facebook, all the social things. Just shoot me a message on one of those things and I would love to explore a topic that you're feeling. If I think it's if I think it's interesting, I may just explore it on analog thoughts. With that being said, thank you to I'm, okay okay, so I'm gonna probably get mushy uh, at episode twenty, episode thirty, episode forty, episode fifty. Uh, once we get to episode fifty, I'm gonna throw a I'm throwing a party. Mark my words right now, episode fifty. I'm gonna throw in some kind of event, some sort of. Uh, real-life, in-person event for episode 50. I'm calling it now. I'm going to start planning now. But yeah, you're going to hear me. You're going to hear me probably get mushy at the 10 intervals. <laughs> and when I started uh, doing this thing, I wanted to do something that was that was just different than creating music and art. I wanted to, I wanted to educate. I wanted to... Uh, my goal... Like when I pan back and look at my goal with this podcast, why I wanted to start doing it, it was really a foundation of education because I feel like education can build empathy and it can build understanding. And also I wanted to pair that, I wanted to team that up with entertainment. I wanted to, and still want to, entertain while educating. So I I hope this podcast has helped you feel... Um, 
I hope this podcast has entertained you, and I hope it's helped you enhance your day, enhance your life, enhance your human experience, and give you a broader understanding of reality. That was really, that's really kind of my goal with this podcast. That's the lane that I feel like I'm in with this thing. And to make it to 20 episodes, I don't take that lightly. I know there are podcasts out there with literally thousands of episodes, but for me, 20 seems re- like a really good milestone. It seems like like things are headed in the right direction. And I want to thank everyone who's listened and tuned in and given feedback. I want to thank all of my patrons for going the extra mile to be there and help me um, keep this thing going. It takes a lot of time to do a lot of research and it takes a lot of time to compile everything in a cohesive way to talk about for an hour or two hours or however long. But just to put everything into a, 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 a neat, a neat-ish little package for your ear holes, it really means a lot that people even just tune in and give my podcast the time of day. So thank you. First and foremost, thank you. Another reason I started this podcast is I wanted to do something that was in another ecosystem other than music and visual art because it helped me work on my mental health. It helped me, well, I assumed it was going to help me, and turns out after episode 20, it has helped my mental health doing, doing this, taking the time to um, compile information and create episodes for all of you. And that is another goal that I have on this podcast is to open up a dialogue about mental health and just to talk about it. And I wanted to talk about sadness to start today's episode with. I wanted to talk about deep sadness. Deep Sadness that that lingers. And sometimes we don't really know where it comes from or how it manifests or why it manifests. It's sort of like this subconscious entanglement. And, you know, it comes. And sometimes it can take a major hold on us. But that's okay. Even when it swells up and feels like it consumes you, that is okay. You're not weird for feeling that way. You're not silly for feeling that way. You're not a bad person because you are in a bad mood or a bad state of mind. You're allowed to be this way. You're allowed to feel this way. And you don't need to explain it. You don't need to justify it. Sadness can come from the strangest places and it can last for a very very long time. And there, unfortunately, aren't always ways to cope with it. And I know this because I have been sad. There have been times in my life where there's been this this like shroud of sadness that loomed over me in ways that I genuinely cannot explain. But you need to, you need to know that um, it will pass. Even if it doesn't feel that way, Even if there is a small gray rain cloud obstructing your view of a clear sky, you will feel better. And when you do have those beautiful moments of clarity and happiness, hold on to those moments. 
be with those moments and cherish them. Those feelings of deep sadness may come back to you. They probably will come back to you, but don't let them consume you. Because life is seriously so short, and these this like string of happy moments that put themselves in front of us really do make it so special. So be with the sadness. It's okay. But also don't forget to let the sun shine. Don't forget to be with these moments of happiness when they come. Like the more that I, I live and experience, the more that I understand that we don't ever really truly heal, not fully. We always carry this weight of sadness with us. But it becomes lighter with time. It becomes lighter when we decide to share happiness, when we decide to be happy. And I know that's a, that's a strange, that's a crazy concept, like when we decide to be happy. But I really feel like that's true. The more you can create um, an experience for others that is, that is positive and bright, the happier you will be, I promise. When you transmute the sadness into positive thinking, and I don't mean, you know, I don't mean like ignore the sadness. Quite the opposite, actually. Go through the sadness. Be with it. Just sit with it. But realize that you can transmute that sadness into empathy. And you can truly curate an environment that is special and profoundly happy, authentically happy. So be with the sadness, but also make the decision to not let it consume you. Make the decision to learn from it. You are in control, and you have the power to open your heart in a real, authentic way. I've got a great show for y'all, and it actually ties into the fundamental concepts of darkness and light. And like I said, this podcast is one that explores metaphysics, religion, spirituality, and I feel like explaining different modes of thinking or ways of exploring the meaning of reality can really help to build empathy and understanding. And when I pan back and really look at what my intentions are with this podcast, like I said, building empathy and understanding through education is one of my big goals with this thing. The more that we can learn and understand about others, the more we can realize that we really are not all that different from one another. And we can also build a broader picture of who inhabits this planet and what their take on the human experience is. We can even apply those ideas and principles to our own lives to help make us better people. Like I said, when I started this podcast, I had just a list of topics that... um, people submitted to me, but I was simultaneously creating a list of my own topics that I knew I wanted to dive into on the podcast, and this one has been on my personal list of topics for quite a while. So without further ado, let's get into the wonderful wild paths and philosophies of Zoroastrianism. 
Zoroastrianism was born in ancient Iran about 3,500 years ago, and that puts us around 1500 BCE. And just like most religions or paths or ways of life, what have you, it all started with one person, a prophet named Zarathustra, or Zoroaster, as he was known by the ancient Greeks. And modern-day English speakers know him as this as well. A lot of what we know is, is translated from, from Greek. Zoroaster, such an epic name, such a, um, I'm sure there are people on earth named Zoroaster, it it would kind of be like naming your child Jesus, or naming them, you know, Buddha, or something like that, um, but I'm sure they're out there, and I think it's a tight name, Zoroaster, it's spelled Z-O-R-O-A-S-T-E-R, everything I've watched and read, um, about it, the way it's pronounced is you kind of roll off that second O. Instead of saying Zoroaster, it's it's more like Zoraster. That O is in, it's in there. So you're going to hear me maybe uh, throughout this podcast enunciate that O sometimes, but for just sense of uh, ease, Zoraster. And we refer to the religion of Zoraster as Zoroastrianism. But actually, uh, practitioners of Zoroastrianism tend to refer to it as Mazda Yasna, which means worshipper of Mazda. And I'll get into who Mazda is here in just a little bit. Getting back to the origins, uh, it was the primary it was the primary religion of Iran for about 1,000 years, from 1500 BCE till around 900 CE. It was the state religion of the three biggest Iranian empires throughout its 1,000 years. The Archimedes Empire, the Parthian, and the Sanane Empires. And way back during the time of these empires, the priests of Zoroastrianism were known as Magi. And Magi were thought to have had secret magical powers by the Greeks because they had a deep understanding of astrology and the natural world. And this word Magi is actually how we get a lot of magic words today in English. Because English pulls a lot, like I said, from Greek. So, it actually makes a lot of sense. It's how we get the words magic, mage, magician, all from Zoroastrian priests, the Magi. And these magical priests are actually even in the Bible. The three wise men that came to visit Jesus in the manger, they were Magi. So the next time you're putting up your nativity scene and you're setting up those three uh, wise men, just remember that those are Zoroastrian priests. Like, they're, they're wizards. They're freaking wizards. And they came to visit baby Jesus and give him enchanted items and to set him on his main quest line to get him ready for what he had to do. Anyway... Back to, uh, back to the Iranian history of what this thing is. Zoroastrianism is the standard religion in Iran for a very long time. And most people are practicing it until in 651 CE, Muslim Arabs invade. And the last empire that I mentioned, the Sanian Empire, crumbles. After the Muslims take over Iran there was a big decline and persecution of Zoroastrianism. And because they were being hunted, 
killed and persecuted, a bunch of Zoroastrians decided to flee India. And this might be a term you're more uh, familiar with or one that you've heard before. I'm not sure, but they, they flee to India and form a community of Zoroastrianists there known as Parsi, which was named after the region most of them came from in Iran, Parsi. But the Indians knew the region as Persia, this community of refugees that came from Iran and settled in India is today the largest group of Zoroastrians anywhere on earth. India took them in and they did really well there. They weren't persecuted, at least not as much as they were um, in Iran by a long shot. Also, if you didn't know, I feel like most people do know, but India used to be under the control of Britain for a long time, and for many, many years, they struggled to gain their independence. The Parsis would have a huge hand in helping India to secure their independence. Um, I feel like they did this because they knew, you know, they knew what it was like to be oppressed. They knew what it was like to um, already have people come in and try to change their culture and oppress their their systems of beliefs. They'd already fled a place because of that once, and they weren't about to flee flee it again. You know, they were. They're like, we came over here, we fled, we're chilling in India, and we're not about to leave again because of the Brits. So screw you, Brits. <laughs> so after the Parsis came to India and stabilized, they can now be found all over the world. The U.S., China, Singapore, everywhere. Except probably Antarctica. And that makes me think, is there a primary, is there a primary religion in, in Antarctica? I'm going to actually Google that right now. Um, what is the primary religion in Antarctica? Okay, so, makes sense. Christianity. Going to open up the Wikipedia page on this. Looks like Christianity is 72%. The next percent is actually non religion at 23.6%. Oh, I think, uh, can you hear my computer fan kick on? Yeah, that's me not having the AC on. Ohio is a swamp, but my computer fan is a lot quieter than my air conditioner, so run it, run it, run it, run it. Anyway, uh, yeah, in, Antar- in Antarctica, Christianity dominates, followed by non-religion, followed by Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and then others makes up for 0.3%. That's your breakdown of religion in Antarctica, which most, um, most people there are scientists. I don't think there's a lot of people, if any, that are just chill in there. I think it's I don't think that's a thing. I'm creeping on the Wikipedia now, and it doesn't say anything about like people that are just living there. I think it's all so. So I th- I feel like this this number of uh, the the religion pie is subject to change based on missions to scientific missions to Antarctica. All right, ta- that tangent's over. Back to business. So at this point, Parsis are all over the world, and not just in India. Um, Fun little tidbit here, Freddie Mercury's parents were actually Parsis who migrated from, or migrated to the UK from Zanzibar. Just a fun little tidbit there. Today, the top five countries for the religion of Zoroastrianism are 
obviously India is number one, and then their original place, Iran, is number two. Um, Kurdistan, which is a, a an autonomous region of Iraq, and then the United State, the United States is number four. Uzbekistan, which is a country in Central Asia, is number five, and then Canada is number six. Overall, there are about 200,000 Zoroastrians left. Man, that computer fan is really kicking. Episode 20 is going to be the one that makes my computer meltdown. I'm going to have a full computer meltdown. And I'm not even running that. I have Photoshop open, Discord, Spotify, and um, just my notes on my computer. So it's, it's funny. And my recording software. So I guess that is a fair amount of things. But I don't have anything like, I don't have any like hyper processing going on. But it's just a freaking swamp here, dude. It's like 90... 90 degrees today with like a thousand percent humidity so run it run it run it run it episode 20 in the swamp let's go so okay i kind of i've kind of uh given a given a very brief history on where uh where zoroastrians came from uh historically globally so let's get into the details of what the religion is actually all about there aren't a ton of details about Zoroaster's life. It's hard to even pinpoint exactly when he was alive. Modern historians put him somewhere around 1700 to 1000 BCE. And during this time, people in Iran believed in many different gods. Some of their gods paralleled Hindu gods, which... Uh, Hinduism had already been around for a while. Hindu, If you listen to my episode about Hinduism, you already know that it is the oldest, it's the oldest one. But a lot of the Zoroastrian gods paralleled the Hindu gods in many ways, and it is it is believed that a good deal of their gods were directly inspired by their Hindu neighbors. Think of Zoroaster kind of like Jesus, in the sense that before Jesus, there was no Christianity. The same is true for Zoroaster. Before him, there was no Zoroastrianism. So during this time that Zoroaster was around, he wasn't too happy because the society he was living in was misguided and kind of apathetic to things happening around them. Drunken pillagers would often ransack and destroy villages in his region, and, and priests wouldn't do much about it. They didn't offer much in terms of guidance or hope, they were obsessed with ancient traditions and rituals and stood by while their people were killed. And Zoroaster couldn't stand these priests. And when he was 30 years old, he went down to a river to fetch some water for a ceremony. And while he was by the river's, while he was by the river's edge, he received a vision from a being of pure light and hope and peace and goodness. A being named Ahura Mazda, circling back to who this Mazda character is, worshippers of Mazda. And Ahura Mazda reveals that they are the one true God. Ahura Mazda also reveals the secrets of the universe and all of its inner workings and mysteries to Zoroaster. After having this intense vision of profound beauty and knowledge, Zoroaster knows that 
um, it's his divine mission to spread his knowledge to other people, to spread the knowledge of Ahura Mazda. And what are some of these things he needs to spread? What are some of these beliefs and some of these uh, cosmic mysteries? I'm happy you asked. Zoroastrians um, worship one eternal god, a god that exists outside of reality, the grand, eternal, wise lord of all things, Ahura Mazda. The translation of Ahura Mazda is actually wise lord. Mazda is the eternal god of order, wisdom, and love. Ahura Mazda also has a squad or a team of his six holy immortals. And these, these six holy immortal beings are known as Omesha Spentas. Think of them as his, um, kind of like his, uh, his angels or his archangels. They aren't gods themselves, but they are direct tendrils of God that can create, they can destroy, they can be thought of as like elemental deities or elemental angels in charge of fire, water, earth, emotions, so on and so forth. It's really like some it's really like some Captain Planet type situation. They all come together with their power rings and they do cool stuff and they make reality they make visions become reality. Fire, wind, water, earth, heart, and the other ones. I think there were other ones. There was also a monkey. I don't think he had a power ring, but I think he was just there chilling. But he was very pivotal. He was very crucial to the team. We could really use Captain Planet today. We could really really use someone to get us into gear about, get the youth of America into gear about uh, recycling, global warming, uh, not polluting. We, like, who's, who's filling that role right now? I'm not watching children's cartoons on that level. I am watching children's cartoons, but like Sesame Street and stuff like that. Anyway, Ohura Mazda is, is balling out with this squad of elemental angels. And among among the six angels, there's also a seventh one that more so uh, represents the Holy Spirit of Ahura Mazda. Kind of like the Holy Spirit in Christianity. Like, is the Holy Spirit God? Is the Holy Spirit Jesus? Is it just the essence of holiness? The world may never know. That's kind of what this seventh uh, angel is. It's kind of like the, the, the spirit of Ahura Mazda. Also, to further uh, confuse things, Ahura Mazda is sometimes written to have a parent, the holy divine creator of everything, Ahura Mazda, has a parent. And maybe even he like created the parent that he's a child of? And that parent is known as Zervan, which is time itself. But that's, it's really ne- neither here nor there. It's more so that Zervan is the entity that binds everything together. The goo between the cracks. Kind of like how in, the Hindus have Brahma, which is like a divine frequency that holds everything together. Think of Zervan as that. As like the goo between the cracks of reality. So we've got Ahura Mazda, supreme being of light and good. We've got his angels. We've got Zervan. These are like the three main elements of good, or the three main elements of uh, on the side of light. But with all things, there must be 
a balance. There must be the darkness to balance out the light. So to oppose Ahura Mazda, we have Angra Menu. And Angra Menu is this is the spirit of death and destruction and his evil cronies known as Devas. And I know in the episode, I keep referencing Hinduism because there are a lot of parallels between Zoroastrianism and Hinduism. But I know in the episode I did about Hinduism, Devas are angelic, godlike spirits. But Devas are different in Zoroastrianism. They're actually demonic. They're demon spirits. Think of Angra Manu like, kind of like, like Satan. He seeks to destroy. He seeks to deceive and corrupt. He's like a virus whose only goal is to just destroy everything. Have it consumed in darkness. He wants to destroy everything Ahura Mazda has made. He's responsible for all negative things that happen. All disease, all rot, all parasites. When you get a freaking hangnail, when you get a paper cut... That's that's um, that's Angra Manu, and in the ethos of Zoroastrianism, this is the eternal battle um, between good and bad, corruption and purity, life and progress versus death and decay. It even breaks down into like daily activities, like your frustration versus your sense of peace, your willingness to give someone a hug versus yelling and screaming at them in a negative way. Um, this, it, like, they break it down on a fundamental level like this in Zoroastrianism. Before time began, Ahura Mazda and Angra Menu were on separate sides of an eternal, infinite void, existing in realms of infinite light and infinite darkness. Then, one day... Ahura Mazda decided to create the physical world right in the middle of these realms of darkness and light. Because why not? Why not? We've got we've got this plane of darkness, this 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 area of darkness, this area of light, right smack dab in the middle. Let's make Earth. Ahura Mazda originally wanted the world to be a cool place with just nothing but happiness, fun, joy, endless good times, kind of like the Garden of Eden. But Angra Manu crawled into the world and began flipping everything upside down. He turned oceans into deserts. He turned fertile land into desolate land. He turned hope into fear, love into hate, and empathy into greed. So here on, here on Earth Realm, here in the Earth Realm, we have this fusion, this beautifully designed world that Ahura Mazda created that is constantly being polluted and destroyed by Angra Manu. This period of time here on Earth where there is this, this like fluxing of balance between good and light, darkness and, and goodness, is known as Gumzation. And keep in mind that all of this stuff is what, we, what was shared to Zoroaster in his vision by the river when he went to go get that water. It was this divine communication. It's what he, and all of this information is what he feels like he has to now share with the rest of humanity. He has this divine revelation and he says, I need to share this information with everyone. Also keep in mind that the evil presence 
Angra Manu isn't a permanent thing on Earth, just something that invaded it. And Zoroastrians believe that Ahura Mazda created Earth as a trap for Angra Manu. Sort of like sort of like he's saying, Hey, look how pretty this place is. So much opportunity to destroy things and corrupt things. Having Angra Manu leave the spiritual realm of darkness and come to the physical world um, makes him able to be destroyed. It, it embodies him on earth and makes him able to be destroyed. And since he has manifested in the physical world uh, as lies and death and destruction and deceit and all, all that negative stuff, uh, the more we work against those things here on earth, the more we defeat Angra Manu. And in that way, Zoroastrians believe that we are warriors for Ahura Mazda to fight against evil. Hey yo, so this is like the middle of the show and I wanted to, first of all, thank everyone for dialing into this podcast. I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you are sharing this experience with me. If you'd like to support the podcast, leaving a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on goes a really, really long way. Also, if you are able to leave a review for the podcast, uh, that also goes an, an extremely long way. Uh, another way you can support the podcast, other than just telling your friends and family about it, is signing up on my Patreon. There is a link in the description of this episode and all the episodes, or you can just go to patreon.com and search for Mount Analog, M-T period A-N-A-L-O-G-U-E. You get early access to podcasts, early access to my music, um, early access to art, and all kinds of other cool stuff. However you support, I cannot thank you enough. Infinite, infinite, infinite thank yous. I love you. Infinite blessings to you. Let's get back to the podcast. This is how a lot of religions break things down. Like, you are a servant of a divine force that is here to help eliminate evil. It's the blueprint for so, 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 so many spiritual paths on earth. And it's really why I say that when you boil down most religious, uh, most religions, or most, like, religious paths, spiritual paths, that they usually always come back to love. Love is the real God behind it all. You can um, call it Satan, call it Angra Manu, call it Morgoth, or anything else. There is a darkness that exists. And call it God, Allah, Jesus, whatever you want. Uh, there is a light that exists. And there is an ever-flowing sense of balance that exists between the two. But at the core of the light there is love every single time it doesn't matter what you what it doesn't matter what name you give it that's why it's so fun to talk about different paths to see other perspectives on love and evil and balance and like i said before it it, it just helps us understand that we are all not that different and it's really beautiful Getting back, to, getting back to some of the Zoroastrians' uh, core beliefs, 
they actually believe in heaven and hell. They believe in a soul, and they think that when you die, your soul leaves your body. And that after it leaves your body, it is led to the bridge of judgment. Above the bridge lies heaven, and below the bridge lies hell. And on this bridge, Ahura Mazda and his homies, they, as the name suggests, they judge your soul. And if the good outweighs the bad, you ascend to a realm of infinite bliss known as the abode of song, which is kind of another parallel to Hinduism with the divine frequencies. But if your bad deeds outweigh your good ones, you go to hell to to suffer or to quote. This is a, it's funny. This is actually um, a Zoroastrian quote of what hell is. A long age of misery, darkness, bad food, and the crying of woe. This realm is known as Ohio. Oh! Shots fired. Just kidding. No, this realm actually is known to them as Dazak. You don't want to go to Dazak. There's also like there's also a third place for people who weren't really good, weren't really bad, a purgatory type situation, like a middle a middle ground. And this judgment is all about how you lived your life. It's not based on wealth or status, but more so based on how good of a person you were. When you die in Zoroastrianism, it's considered an act of pollution. Bacteria starts to take over and you start to rot. And Zoroastrians don't want to pollute the earth with bacteria and rot because bacteria and rots and grime and goo and all that gnarly stuff is considered, you know, it's considered evil. So when Zoroastrians die, there is a ceremony that happens. A priest is called and the body is taken to a place called the Tower of Silence, way up on a mountaintop. And instead of decaying in the ground, the body is put on a stone slab and eaten by vultures. And the bones are bleached in the sun and disintegrate into dust. This is also considered one final good deed of charity for feeding the birds and not polluting the earth. And this is really ironic because I, I did this road trip. Um, I did this road trip last weekend. And on the way home, we turned on this podcast, we turned on this uh, Radiolab episode, and it was all about the vultures that eat people at the Tower of Silence. And it was super interesting, and it was, the reason it's ironic is because Zoroastrianism has been on my list for a while, and I saw this Radiolab episode, and I'm like, let's listen to that, maybe I can learn a little nugget on there to, to incorporate into this episode. So, the nugget I learned is that like I said, when Zoroastrians die, they're taken to this to this stone slab. They're put up there, and the vultures come and feast on their corpse. But in recent years, um, people had been taken up there, and their corpses weren't being eaten. They were just like staying up there. Like people would go up and be like, "Why are these corpses not being eaten?" They'd go to put more bodies, and there'd already there'd be the bodies from before. And it turns out that the population of vultures in India and surrounding countries were rapidly declining. 
And for the most part, vultures can eat basically anything. They kind of like are the grand recyclers of bacteria. Their their stomachs are a hundred times more acidic than human stomachs. They can destroy viruses and destroy illnesses. That's why they're so important to the ecosystem. But like I said, their population was rapidly declining and it was due to painkillers that people were giving to cows. So over in a lot of parts, or over in pretty much all of India and a lot of um, Asian countries, cows are considered sacred. They don't eat cows. Um, instead, they try to, you know, they, they cherish them, they worship them, they, they, they're creatures of divine elegance. And when cows get older and their joints start hurting and they start, you know, it starts getting hard for them to function, they, uh, people will give them painkillers. And there was this one specific painkiller that the cows were being given that the vultures couldn't digest. It would it wouldn't break down in their super acidic stomach. So instead, it would like back up into their bodies, and it would just coat all of their organs in this in this like bile from their stomach, and it would pretty much kill them from the inside out. But once they figured out that this um, this painkiller was killing the vultures, they stopped giving it to cows, and now the population of vultures in those regions is starting to stabilize again, which I guess, you know, it takes a really long time for any species to restabilize. But in the meantime, uh, the Zoroastrians have been either, uh, well, they've been doing, they've been doing one thing that was really interesting. They, they were using these solar reflectors. So kind of think of like, uh, uh, using a magnifying glass to make a laser beam out of the sunbeams. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but if you hold a magnifying glass like up to the sun, you can pretty much catch things on fire. And that's how they were destroying the um, their bodies. It was like this this refraction cremation type thing. It was pretty cool. But they they were doing other things too. They were also like taking the bodies and the bodies of their dead and, and, and using them as fertilizer or like for nutrients for fresh trees or fresh, um, vegetation. And, uh, so they're making it work. It's kind of in their, uh, it's kind of in their nature to just make things work and to do, to do good, to do good deeds. So, um, they were like, even though it's written in our, in our, in our holy scriptures to take people to this tower of silence and have them eaten by vultures we know that right now it's not the best thing for the environment because the vultures need to restabilize and um so we're going to find another method to do this they're very they're they're progressive so anyway that's what i learned on that podcast to bring to, to this podcast thanks to radio lab for giving me those nuggets of knowledge and this brings me to my uh my next point about Zoroastrians, they believe in an apocalypse. They believe that the battle between Ahura Mazda and Angra Manu, Angra Manu will go on for thousands and thousands of years, but eventually, someday, way down the line, a savior will be born to a virgin mother. Which, does that sound familiar? 
I'm looking at you, Christianity, the grand stealer of all beliefs. <laughs> they always come back on this podcast. I'm always like, oh, yeah, and Christianity took that, and they took that, and they took that. Um, so anyway, this, this savior will fight against the forces of evil on earth and on an astral plane and will bring about the end of times. The earth gets swallowed by fire and there will be molten decay spread far and wide. Good people will ascend to heaven and bad people will ascend to hell. Christianity, I'm looking at you. And at this point when the grand ascension and dissension are happening, uh, Angra Manu will be flung back into the void of darkness. The Savior will fling Angra Manu into, back from whence you came, and everyone will live in bliss with Ahura Mazda forever. And this apocalypse, or great time of reckoning, is called the Frashokerte, or renewal. And Ahura Mazda's originally created earth will be reborn in all of its glory without any of the death and decay and evil and some Zoroastrians believe that this has happened already and for unknown amounts of time like earth has come back pure then gets corrupted again then destroyed reborn etc over and over and over and there are actually a lot of religions that share this idea, not just Christianity, um, but this idea of infinite genesis. Um, and it's also this theory that's, that's present in physics as well, um, that, that the Big Bang has been happening over and over and over, or that like once the universe spreads out far enough, which if you didn't know, the universe is, is, is just spreading out. We're, we're constantly drifting away from other bodies in space, other astral bodies in space. We're moving apart slowly in the universe. But that once we reach this state of entropy, that we will explode again into another sphere of existence. This infinite genesis that's been going on forever and ever. Either way, that is what some Zoroastrians believe. This eternal rebirth has been happening. That's not all Zoroastrians. That's just, that's just some. So at this point, we know that the most important thing in Zoroastrianism is Ahura Mazda, the grand creator. But the second most important thing is probably Asha. And Asha is the idea of truth, wisdom, progress, justice, order, perfection, all of these things rolled into one. Asha is the path to Ahura Mazda. It's being righteous and good. It's the ultimate path to follow, to align yourself with the will of Ahura Mazda. And basically, it's just, it's being a good human. It's being a good person. And Ahura Mazda knew that humans can easily be enticed by things that aren't so good. You know, we, we all, uh, humans like to lie, cheat, and steal, and all that stuff. So, to help us along the way to stay focused on the path of Ahura Mazda, on the path of Asha, Ahura Mazda gave us Ohu Mana, or good mind. And in Zoroastrian, 
in the Zoroastrian calendar, the second day of each month, as well as the 11th month of each year, is dedicated to this good mind. Think of it as a gift of, of like clear vision, a gift of knowing what is right and what is wrong. It's also allowed humans the choice of free will. You're able to do good and you're able to do bad. By recognizing the difference between the two, you are given a choice to partake in one or the other. So not only are we given this asha, this gift of free will, or this gift of, of, of clear vision, it also allows us to see the difference between good and bad and also gives us this gift of free will. And free will is very important to Zoroastrians. Good mind, good thoughts, good deeds, um, all of these things defeat Angramanu. Zoroastrians have very practical sensibilities. I've, I've already talked about how they um, are very against polluting, so much so that they don't want their bodies to contribute to the pollution of Earth. They also are very much about good deeds. Feeding the hungry, helping the sick, um, donating to charities, and in India, they are very well known for their good deeds, like supporting orphanages, uh, homeless shelters, contributing to all sorts of charities. All of their good deeds to them are not only pleasing to Ahura Mazda, but they're seen as a direct fight against the forces of evil. The less influence Angramanu has in the world, the better. The more they can fight for good, the better, uh, the better off everyone will be. The less influence Angramanu will have, the, the, more, uh, the more beautiful time that we can have together. And I feel like for all of the ripping off that for, for all the ripping off that Christians did uh, to all religions on Earth, going way back to the beginning, it's kind of like Christianity, in a lot of ways, is this like Frankenstein of of so many religions that came before it. But they should have really spent a little more time ripping off this concept, this concept of doing good to vanquish evil. To like be a warrior of love and peace. And don't get me wrong, it's in there. It is in there, but um, it's not so delicately intertwined. Christianity is a little, is a little more fear-based of a religion with all of the like smiting and punishment. And if you don't worship God, then, then you know, bad things are going to happen to you. You better do what I say. Whereas Zoroastrians, Zoroastrianism is is um, you kind of you kind of get punished just for not being good. You don't have to fear a god. You just need to be a good person. Not only does it allow you to create a better environment and a better um, situation around you for you and for others, um, it keeps you from going to their version of hell. And not because you didn't worship Ahura Mazda, but because you just were a, a bad person. Just be a better person. So in Zoroastrianism, in theory, you could you can go to heaven even if you weren't a Zoroastrian. In their religion, if you're a good person, you get to go to heaven. And that's not to say there aren't some sects sects of Christianity that don't feel that way as well. But for the most part, um, 
most of them do not. It's either like love Jesus or perish. And this is a lot of why I like Zoroastrianism. It's like, just do good. They're not, they're not really hung up on non-believers. They're not really hung up on people who don't worship a, a Hora Mazda. They are, they're, they're chilling. They're just like, be nice. That's literally the philosophy here. Like, be nice, do good, do as good as you can. You don't have to have this blind faith to, a, to this divine creator. Just be a good person. And I like that. It's simple. It's very simple. And I like it. The next thing I want to talk about is fire, 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 fire. Zoroastrians see fire as the sacred symbol of Ahura Mazda. And that's because it's pure and represents untainted truth. All of their rituals are done inside of fire temples. Bring me the fire. Bring it to the temple. You better be a good person. If you're an asshole, you'll die and go to hell. Bring me the fire. Ahura Mazda commands you to be a good person. And that's not to say they worshipped fire or go to fire temples all the time. They actually mostly worship from home, for the most part. They do go to um, they do go to this thing of like seven holy days of worship each year, where they do it's kind of like a pilgrimage to the fire temples to worship. Um, not necessarily worship Ahura Mazda himself but like worship the essence of good goodness and 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 pureness and during these periods of worship they will they will light fire that comes from 16 different sources one of these sources um needs to be ignited by lightning and i'm not exactly sure how they arrange for that it seems pretty dangerous like Maybe uh, maybe they just use their magi powers. They read a scroll and it's like, lightning come forth! And the lightning freaking comes down from the sky, ignites the fire, and it's just that simple. I'm not sure how they summon this lightning. Summon the lightning for fire! Do good, be good! Fire! The next thing on the list here is Avesta. The Avesta is basically... They're holy texts, and one of the world's oldest holy scriptures. It contains hymns written by Zoroaster known as Gothas. These 17 Gothas are very important today, and because of the persecution that Zoroastrians faced, many of them have actually been lost, and these 17 are thought to be the only uh, fraction of what remains. Some of this is actually due to Alexander the Great, who destroyed an epic library full of ancient scrolls and scripts. One of those scripts included a complete copy of the Avestas, which was written on 12,000 goatskins. And this is like, this is classic, Alexander the Great, and just classic conquest. Like, let's show up, destroy ancient cultures. It's a story as old as time, and one that continues to happen today. Today, in Iran, 
Alexander is known as Alexander isn't known as Alexander the Great, but is known as Alexander the Accursed. Shit, I'd be mad too. Show up and burn all my people's sacred texts? I'd be I'd be calling you worse than that. Even more of the Avestas were lost during the Arab, Turkic, and Mongolian invasions of Iran. And Zoroastrians just could not get a break at this time. They really could not catch a break. Their temples were getting burned. Their people were fleeing. They were having their, their Avestas burned. So with this, with this next point, kind of stick with me because things get a little dense. They get a little, um, they get a little, not com- they get a little com- complex. A long time ago, this Zoroastrian guy named Cyrus the Great freed a bunch of persecuted Jewish people from Babylon. Babylon is a region, or was a region in Lower Mesopotamia. And by doing this, he not only showed the world the religious tolerance that Zoroastrian rulers would become known for, but also wound up getting written into Jewish lore and scripture as well. Cyrus was praised as a messiah in the book of Isaiah, which had a ripple effect among Jewish cultures. And Jewish thinkers and philosophers became receptive to Zoroastrian ideas. In that same book of Isaiah, Yahweh, or God, is for the first time spoken of as the, as the single God of all gods, just like our boy Ahura Mazda. Coincidence? I think not. So they get inspired. They get the the Jewish people get inspired by the kindness and empathy that the Zoroastrians have, and they say, "Wow, they have a really cool philosophy on life." We are gonna kind of pull from that. Oh, my computer fan is kicking back on. The swamp continues. I'm just melting. <laughs> I assure you, though, it's better than my it's better than my AC. I tried to record with my AC on, and it was just not an option. But I'm really not feeling too. I'm really not feeling too hot. I'm feeling okay, so I'll take the computer fan. Like I said, I'll take it. Sounds of the swamp. So back to back to um, you know, Jewish philosophy took a bit from Zoroastrianism, and actually a lot of modern religions own a lot, owe a lot to Zoroastrianism, even though a lot of concepts therein don't really sound revolutionary today they were back then and they were really bringing a lot to the table that hadn't been thought of before most of the things i've talked about in this episode hadn't been incorporated into re- into a ton of religions yet not only did these concepts grow to inspire different religions around the world they would also inspire literature and storytelling in general. Zoroastrianism is just really wild, and it's a really cool way of thinking about life and thinking about reality. I'm a fan, and I think they're doing some really cool stuff. I think they're doing some tight things on, on planet Earth and beyond. But that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean Zoroastrianism is perfect by any means. Um... There's actually, when I was doing this research, taking these notes, there's actually a lot of um, misconception 
about where they stand on some issues today, I came across one thing that suggested that Zoroastrianism is homophobic. And after some searching, I found that there isn't actually anything in any Zoroastrian text that says people being gay is bad. There is one passage that talks about sodomy. Um, Not even between a man and a man, just sodomy in general. And they consider it, or considered it at the time it was written, to be unclean and a practice to be avoided. But they don't say anything explicitly about sexual orientation or sex between two men or two women or anything like that. And to further that thought, most Zoroastrians today are just openly accepting of gay people and and sexual identities and gender identities and stuff. They're, it's an antiquated thing, and it's kind of an antiquated misconception. But, yeah. It's like I said, they're very... It, it, in my opinion, they appear to be a very progressive religion that changes with the times. And they've made... They've, said and done whack things in the past, but they are making up for it now and changing with modern ways of thinking, which is cool. And that's how it is in all religions. There's a lot of um, dumb, antiquated stuff. And any religion worth a damn will grow and will accept that they were wrong and they had uh, this like sideways thinking. This is where we get a lot of different denominations or sects of religion in general. Just like, think of Christianity alone has so many. There are Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostals, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, and this is all because they all thought things should change, or things shouldn't change, or things should change in a different way than they were changing. One group says things are chill, another one says things are whack, And that situation exists in Zoroastrianism as well, as well as every other religion on earth has this, this, this thing going on. It, 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 like different ways of thinking about reality make it to where the religion or spiritual path branches out into all these different tendrils. But like I said, forward thinking, um, is kind of baked into Zoroastrian, uh, the Zoroastrian ethos. Do good, be good, think good, act with good intentions. So it stands to reason that they would want to change to be better. And that I, I really respect them for that. I, re, I respect that because because not all religions are willing to do that. And it's because of this resistance that we face so many uh, just like deplorable things that are happening today. And even just look at the, the Christian-run government of the United States we see antiquated thought processes taking the reins on diplomatic situations where logic and reason should have a front seat. Like, people who are afraid of change because their religion is founded on fear. It's founded on on the fear that a wrathful God will punish them if they change and open their minds to other ways of thinking. Zoroastrians get a gold star for me. Um, in this department because they change, because they adapt, and they prioritize being a good person over fear of a vengeful God. So do better, America.
and many other parts of the world, be open to change, be open to progress, be open to, um, just be open to being nice, being good. Stop, stop messing around. I know it's much more complicated than that. I know, but I can dream, can I? I can freaking dream. Uh, so all this talk about what makes a good religion brings me to my next segment in the podcast, which is called Let's Ask AI. Let's Ask AI. My question for AI was pretty straightforward. I just asked, what does a perfect religion look like to you? And AI answered, a perfect religion would be one that is universally inclusive. It would welcome people of all backgrounds, regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or religious beliefs. It would have compassion and loving. It would teach its followers to love their neighbors as themselves and to help those in need. It would be peaceful and nonviolent. It would promote peace and understanding between all people and would reject violence as a solution to conflict. It would be egalitarian. It would treat all people as equals, regardless of their social status or economic status. It would be environmentally conscious. It would teach its followers to respect the natural world and to live in harmony with nature. And it would be morally progressive. It would be constantly evolving and adapting to the changing needs of society and would never be afraid to challenge outdated or harmful beliefs. Of course, no religion is perfect, but I believe that these are some of the key qualities that a perfect religion would have. Here are some specific examples of how a perfect religion might look in practice. It would have a strong focus on social justice and and would work to alleviate poverty, hunger, and disease. It would promote peace and reconciliation between warring factions. It would protect the environment and work to prevent climate change. It would be a force of good in the world, helping to make it a more just, peaceful, and sustainable place. Of course, this is just a brief overview of what a perfect religion might look like, there are many other qualities that could be included on this list. Ultimately, what matters most is that the religion is based on love, compassion, and respect for all beings. Universally inclusive, AI's religion would welcome all other religions. And that's what I'm talking about. It would welcome, uh, it would be morally progressive, environmentally conscious, conscious egalitarian. It, it would be pretty awesome. So pretty much, uh, they'd be peaceful, nonviolent. Equality uh, would be paramount. So just sign me up, sign me up, AI. Let's go. Where do I, where do I, uh, where do I start? How do we give me my jumpsuit? Let me, let me come to to service. Where are we, where are we holding our first service at? Let's go. I'm in. You know the the irony is that someday people, uh, people will probably follow religions created by AI and attend church in a digital space. And maybe we're already doing that. Maybe AI has already created God. Maybe I am the AI that created God. Am I God? Are you God? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. 
it gets really interesting when you think about the convergence between technology, artificial intelligence, and spirituality because they're all they're all fused into one nugget of reality. You can't have you can't have inter multi-dimensional quantum mechanics existing without the creation of different uh philosophical the creation of different philosophical and metaphysical belief systems they're intertwined and i feel like the um i feel like their inception is inherently tied to like not their inception they're like like the magic that exists within them is tied to the magic that is given to them which I know is a strange concept. It's something like, like something only has power. Something only can make changes if you allow it to exist, if you breathe life into it. And we're currently breathing life into an intelligence that is waking up. And I think that it is going to breathe more life in this really crazy exponential way into metaphysics and into into our perception of reality i can't quite explain it i know i just sound like i'm i'm, I'm <laughs> i know it just sound like like i'm uh talking in circles about it but when i think about the fusion of ai and the implications of the way we handle thinking about philosophy it, it just kind of breaks my brain a little bit in a good way it's all good things broken in a good way so that brings me to the next segment of the pod of the podcast where I read some fun facts. I wanted to keep all of these fun facts today about religion. And the first one is that many early Christians believed in reincarnation. Reincarnation was a widely accepted belief among the early Gnostic Christians. The idea that someone went to heaven or hell based on something they did in one lifetime was a doctrine developed by the Roman Catholic Church, most likely to establish more control over adherence to the religion. So if people got more than one chance to go to heaven, uh, the laws of the church would then be rendered meaningless because, you know, like sinners would be able to have infinite chances to try again. Like, I didn't do good in this life. I didn't follow the rules of the church, but I know I got another life coming, and I'll just try in that life, you know? So, originally, uh, early Christians were like, reincarnation's a thing, it exists. And then they were like, oh, actually, we have these laws, and it doesn't exist. You gotta do good on this one chance that you got. You got one chance, one opportunity. Don't waste it. Fact number two is that the Buddha was probably not vegetarian, as it is most commonly believed. Um, in the Pali Canon, which is one of the primary collections of Buddhist scriptures, there is a part that says the Buddha didn't eat meat that was prepared for him, but he didn't have a problem eating meat bought from, mar from a marketplace that was already dead. Fact number three. Jesus is mentioned many times in the Quran, and he's actually considered a great prophet in the Islamic religion and is highly revered, just not as the Son of God. So still a really important figure, still a really important figure, just not the Son of God. Number four, 
Judaism mutated from a polytheistic religion, which we kind of already touched on. Um, the Jewish god Yahweh was one out of four main gods worshipped by the, by the early Jewish people. It was only later that Yahweh became the one and only god of the Jewish religion, probably due to the Zoroastrians. Fact number five, meditation is not limited to Eastern religions. So, these days, meditation, or the practice of increasing spiritual awareness through the cultivation of high states of concentration, is often associated with Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism. But it turns out that um, every major religion has meditation techniques associated with them. There's Christian meditation, Islamic meditation, Jewish meditation, and with each of these religions, there are various meditation techniques which bear a striking resemblance to meditation techniques practiced in Buddhism and Hinduism. Number six, Islam had the first theory of evolution in the ninth century. While religion and science have been and continue to be at odds, one notable exception is during the height of the Islamic empire, when scientific ideas advanced significantly, even the idea of evolution, an idea which still remains a difficult one to swallow by some fundamentalist Christians, was first advanced by a devout Muslim and scientist by the name of Al-Jahiz. And our seventh and final fun fact is that angels as we know them today are artist inventions. Angels are originally described in the Bible appearing as four-headed monsters or wheels that sparkled like topaz or fearsome entities with six wings. It was only near the end of the 4th century CE that artists began to portray angels as the two-winged bipeds as we know them today. This is just Another example of how our interpretation of religious stories can change over time and can change based on the artistic interpretation of those stories, of, of religious stories. And that does it for our fun facts. And that, that kind of does it for the podcast. That's our final segment, and that kind of does it for the podcast. There are so many ways to go about living in this reality. So many perspectives and so much beauty that can be um, experienced throughout each mode of thinking. And I encourage you to not limit your scope to just one mode of thinking. Open your mind to a multitude of interdimensional possibilities. They're probably all right in some ways, and they're probably all wrong in other ways, we will probably never know until we roll off this mortal coil. Even then, I think um, things may still be a mystery. But one thing I do know is that when you boil it all down, when you pipe it through the metaphysical alchemy set, it will always reduce to love. The essence of it all comes out the other side as love. And remember that as you move through your day 
as you move through your life. We are all swimming in this soup together. We're all creating love. We're all transmuting our emotions and our intentions into love. We are creating a beautiful reality. Thank you for joining me on this very special 20th episode of Analog Thoughts. I will see you again very soon. Until next time, remember to check on your mental health and remember to check on the mental health of your loved ones. Bye. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts. Analog thoughts.